This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend 1984 by George Orwell. This is honestly the easiest Audible recommendation I've ever done. I love George Orwell's work, and 1984 is one of the best pieces he ever did. Read it if you haven't, read it again if you have, and go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. History of Japan podcast, episode 185, Lifting the Lost, part 3. So if you're going to build a new Japan, the first thing you need is a blueprint, a fundamental guide upon which later decisions will be based, and upon which the future of the country can be established. In other words, you need a constitution. Today is the story of Japan's 1947 constitution commonly called the Showa Constitution, since it's from the period of the reign of Emperor Showa, a.k.a. Hirohito. This distinguishes it from the old Meiji Constitution from 1889. Very early in the planning by the State War Navy Coordinating Committee, or SWINK, it was decided that the old constitution had to go. The Meiji Constitution was fundamentally an authoritarian document, It heavily circumscribed both the powers of elected assemblies and the individual rights enjoyed by Japanese subjects, not, by the way, Japanese citizens. For example, adding a within-the-limits-provided-by-law to pretty much every single right guaranteed to the Japanese people. That's not to mention the confusing working of the government itself. The emperor theoretically held a tremendous amount of power and served as the head of state and the head of government, But of course, in practice, the emperor didn't make decisions in order to avoid having the throne associated with a failed policy. This meant that in practice, the person who supposedly ran the government didn't actually do anything, which created this bizarre system where nobody was actually in charge and responsibility was so diffuse it was impossible to say who should be held accountable for what. Now, in particular, the amount of freedom given to the military deeply troubled the Americans. Under the Meiji government, the army and navy were co-equal services, which lacked a unified chain of command and set their own policies, and they answered only to the emperor, not the prime minister, again an emperor who makes no actual decisions. This is the reason that Japanese military policy tends to be, generously, a confused mess during the time before World War II. There was no coherent vision behind it, because the army and navy were fighting over their respective priorities and there wasn't anyone to keep them in line. This arrangement was, of course, completely unacceptable for the Americans, so establishing a new system had to be a priority. But of course, any new constitution would run into something of an awkward problem. 
The whole theory upon which democratic republics like the United States are built is one of popular sovereignty, that it is the will of the people that gives legitimacy to a government. The United States Constitution, for example, is legitimate in this view because the individual state governments or assemblies as representatives of the people of the state signed onto it, first during the ratification debates and then as each state joined the Union. A Japanese constitution imposed by the Americans would thus present an awkward situation if it was to be grounded in notions of popular sovereignty. It would be a popular document imposed by a foreign government which was occupying Japan with a very large military force. So not exactly the unvarnished will of the people. Of course, the Americans could hold a referendum to approve a new constitution, but that raised kind of an awkward problem too. What if it was rejected? Still, before all this could even really be considered, a new constitution had to be written. Douglas MacArthur and Allied General Headquarters used Article 6 of the Potsdam Proclamation, which laid out Allied plans for Japan as the rationale to defend this project. It read, quote, There must be eliminated for all time the authority and influence of those who have deceived and misled the people of Japan into embarking on world conquest. This same article will be relevant next week because it's also the justification for the war crimes trials, which is going to be a really interesting conversation for us, by the way. Anyway, MacArthur was sensitive enough to the optics of the whole situation to know that it would look really bad if the Americans just up and drafted a new constitution. That's not exactly the will of the Japanese people. So instead, MacArthur began to ask the existing Japanese government about maybe drafting one themselves. You see, the pre-war government continued to actually operate after the surrender, minus, of course, the departments of the Army and Navy, which were forcibly disarmed and then shut down. Even after the formal surrender ceremony on September 2nd, 1945, the Japanese government continued to function, with a prime minister operating by the rules of the Meiji Constitution appointed by the Emperor. On October 4, 1945, Douglas MacArthur got this ball rolling by meeting with a member of that government, Konoe Fumimaro. Konoe has actually factored into our story before, most notably as the man in the prime minister's chair, first when Japan went into its unending war with China in 1937, and then again as the situation with the United States spiraled out of control in 1940-41. He also led an initiative in 1945 to try and convince the emperor to surrender in order to stave off a potential communist revolution that he was convinced would come if the defeats continued to mount. After the war, Konoe tried to position himself as a useful intermediary between the government and the Americans, emphasizing in particular that he had resigned in October 1941, before Japan and America had gone to war, and had led several peace initiatives before that. Konoe insisted that this established his pro-American credentials, and that his resignation from the prime ministership had been a matter of protest against foolish policy. Personally, I see it as more him refusing to take responsibility for the total failure of his own policy, by making a mess of everything and then passing off the mess to someone else, but that's a different story. Still early on, this idea appealed to MacArthur, 
and so Konoe was encouraged to take the lead in discussions with the emperor on a new constitution. Konoe's early proposals, as he described them, involved clearly subordinating the military to the control of a representative assembly, or the Diet, and clarifying the human rights guaranteed in the Constitution by establishing that they took precedence over any law. He also wanted to establish the role of the Emperor as a symbolic head of state, while shoring up the power of the elected government, and abolishing extra-governmental organizations with influence like the Emperor's private circle of advisors known as the Privy Council. Unfortunately for Konoe, by December, MacArthur had cooled somewhat on the idea that he should be in charge of constitutional revision, particularly when details of just how involved Konoe had been in starting and then bungling the China War started to come out. On December 10th, Konoe was informed that he should stop working on the constitutional drafts, and that he was being indicted as a Class A war criminal for crimes against the peace. Ten days later, he took poison to avoid a trial. Still, before his death, Konoe provided a valuable service to the throne. By making the fact that the emperor had approved his project of writing a new constitution a matter of public record in several newspaper interviews, Konoe tied the emperor very directly to the notion of American-style democracy. Where previously the imperial throne had seemed to be the antithesis of democracy, now the emperor could be portrayed as, if not a champion of democracy, at least an ally of it. After the failure of the Konoe draft, MacArthur ordered the Japanese to try again. The sitting prime minister was Shidehara Kijiro, a pre-war diplomat acceptable to the Americans because of his very public stances in favor of arms control talks in the 1920s. Shidehara was directed by MacArthur to resume working on a draft, the Prime Minister, in turn, tapped an accomplished lawyer named Matsumoto Joji as his Minister of State and then ordered Matsumoto to work on the drafting project. This draft, however, would turn out to be a disaster. Matsumoto was just not the right man for the job. He believed that at a fundamental level there was nothing wrong with the old Constitution. In fact, because it established clearly the sacrosanct and inviolable nature of the emperor's authority, it was actually a good constitution. All it needed was a few tweaks. What became known as the Matsumoto Draft, then, was more or less a copy-paste of the old Meiji constitution, with a few minor touch-ups here and there to clarify the exact relationship between the emperor and the government, and with a demotion for the military, making it subordinate to the civilian government, which, in the eyes of the Americans, was a start, but not enough. Fundamentally, really, Matsumoto was just not in a position to be seriously critical of the Meiji system. After all, he'd done really well out of it. He was from a well-to-do family and had lived a life full of opportunities for his own advancement. In Matsumoto's eyes, and even in the eyes of Prime Minister Shidehara, the system was already fine. Besides, as Matsumoto pointed out, it wasn't like the Meiji Constitution was fundamentally anti-democratic. Democratic governments had existed in the 1920s with active political parties and elected prime ministers and everything. All we have to do is roll things back to that, and it'll be fine. To accomplish this rollback, Matsumoto laid out four points. 
First, there would be no changes in the fundamental idea of the Meiji Constitution, that the emperor, not the people, was the sovereign ruler of the state. Second, the responsibilities of the Diet would in practice be broadened and those of the emperor would in practice be limited. Third, the cabinet would be more clearly subordinated to the Diet and would take on more and more day-to-day -day management of government. Fourth, human rights would be strongly guaranteed in the new constitution. For Matsumoto, that would be all it took. But for Douglas MacArthur, that was not going to fly. The problem with trying to get Japan back to the 1920s was that Japan had eventually become Japan in the 1930s. There was no guarantee that things wouldn't just turn out the same way all over again, and then what, we'll just all be back here in 1966 having the exact same damn conversation. Matsumoto's draft was also leaked to the Japanese public in late January 1946, and the reaction was immediate and extremely negative. After all, he and other wealthy elites had done well out of the old system. To judge by the fact that the country was now in ruins, not everybody else had. From the revived socialists and communists, from centrists, even from some on the Japanese right, the Matsumoto draft of the Meiji Constitution version 2.0 was an embarrassment that showed a real disconnect with the reality of modern Japan. Defeat, you see, had proven to many citizens of Japan that that version of government just wasn't right. The fact that Japan had lost and the United States had won had established pretty clearly that A, the way things had been wasn't good enough, B, American-style democracy was the future, and C, People like Matsumoto and Shidehara were trapped in the past, unable to understand A and B. However, Matsumoto pointedly ignored the criticism and ignored draft constitutions being published by Japan's political parties. Matsumoto couldn't ignore, though, Douglas MacArthur coming to him and telling him that this was not going to fly. MacArthur made his displeasure with the Matsumoto draft loud and clear in the way that only Douglas MacArthur could. Matsumoto, in turn, attempted to defend his draft by falling back on old ideas of an unbridgeable cultural gap between Japan and the West. In a letter to Allied General Headquarters, he said, quote, Some of the roses of the West, when cultivated in Japan, lose their fragrance totally. But that kind of flowery, rimshot language was not going to convince MacArthur. Democracy or bust. So when, with great fanfare, Matsumoto Joji's draft arrived at Douglas MacArthur's desk, MacArthur promptly threw the damn thing out the window. And that's when he made a fateful decision. If the Japanese weren't going to play ball and give him the constitution that he wanted, he was going to give them a constitution instead. On February 4th, 1946, Douglas MacArthur handed one of his chief aides... Colonel Charles Cades of Newburgh, New York, an assignment. Assemble the best people he could from the occupation government and hold a constitutional convention for Japan. This constitutional convention would be guided by a single sheet of paper scribbled by MacArthur with three points on it. First, preserve the emperor but remove his powers, making him subordinate to the constitution and the people. Second, Disarm Japan permanently by writing an anti-war clause into the Constitution. Third, end Japan's peerage system and its system of hereditary nobility. Oh, and as a little footnote on the bottom, 
pattern the budget after the British parliamentary system. Oh, and what's the deadline for this homework assignment, you might ask? In eight days, the new draft had to be on MacArthur's desk on February 12th. For comparison, if you're curious, the U.S. Constitutional Convention went from May 14th to September 17th, 1787. You may ask what the damn rush was. Why do this in eight days? Why not give the Japanese another go, perhaps this time picking some people from outside the government? I think the answer is two-pronged, first having to do with MacArthur's own impatience to accomplish his objective, he wasn't really the wait-and-let-things-play-out type of person, and second having to do with the geopolitical situation. You see, in early 1946, the other allies, Great Britain, China, France, and Australia chiefly, started demanding an increased voice in the nature of the occupation, and plans began to come together to produce a unified board of directors, so to speak, for the occupation, in the form of the Far Eastern Commission, which would begin to supervise MacArthur's work, including on the Constitution, sometime in late February. That meant that if MacArthur wanted to have the ultimate say in the form of the new Constitution, that draft had to be done and accepted by the Japanese before the Far Eastern Commission could get itself together. Colonel Cades was chosen to lead the drafting committee because of his background. Prior to enlisting in the army, he'd been a lawyer. He, in turn, was empowered to bring together a group of Americans, just Americans, to produce a new draft. They would be sequestered inside Allied Occupation Headquarters in the Daiichi Building for eight days, given a ballroom to use as a convention hall, and had severe limits placed on their ability to communicate with the outside world so that the drafting process could take place in secret. Crucially, very few of the people chosen to do the actual drafting had backgrounds in Japan, Japanese law, or really knew anything about Japan before they'd signed up for the occupation. MacArthur and Whitney very deliberately froze out people they considered too tied to what Japan had been, the old Japan hands in the State Department, for example, because they felt that cultural knowledge like that was irrelevant. After all, they were transplanting American democracy to Japan, so knowledge of the American system was what mattered. I find this attitude really fascinating, honestly. On the one hand, it's indicative of the most extreme egotism of American exceptionalism. Our way is the only way, and other ideas can be judged primarily, or even solely, on a spectrum of how much they conform to our own. On the other hand, it's also a direct rejection of the kind of egotistic paternalism that underlay the attitudes of some Americans towards Japan, and Japanese elites in some cases to the Japanese masses. It's a rejection of the idea that some kind of Eastern attitude or Oriental culture meant that the Japanese were unable to engage with Western ideas of liberty and democracy, that they were a bunch of hive-minded followers. In other words, it's a rejection of some, though certainly not all, of the racist attitudes of the day. Now we've talked a bit about some of the more specific provisions of the Constitution, specifically Articles 14 and 24, which protect the rights of Japanese women to gender equity, as well as equality in marriage, as well as the economic articles of the Constitution. These sections of the Constitution were driven by the two women present at the drafting ceremony, 
Beata Sarota, an Austrian-American Jew who was able to sell her male colleagues on including gender equity in the Constitution, and Eleanor Hadley, an American economist who took on the personal crusade of breaking up Japan's megacorporations, the Zaibatsu. If you want to have another look at those articles and those women, check out episode 59 in the podcast feed. I'm going to be operating on the assumption that that story is old hat for you, so I'm not going to retread it here. Instead, I'm going to focus on other aspects of the drafting process. The first and most interesting, and ultimately I think the most important part of the process, is Article 9, the so-called Disarmament Clause. The origins of the idea that Japan should be a demilitarized state are a bit murky. It was not a part of swink planning before the war, made obvious by the fact that Germany and Italy, unlike Japan, have no article like that in their constitutions. Douglas MacArthur would later credit the idea to the sitting Prime Minister, Shidehara Kijiro, who MacArthur said expressed an interest in removing the military from Japan altogether because defeat had disgraced the institution so thoroughly that nobody would ever take it seriously again. Shidehara himself endorsed that reading in a couple of post-war interviews, saying that in private meetings with MacArthur, he endorsed the idea of disarming the Japanese military after MacArthur said that he wanted to see it reduced substantially in size. However, that version of events has been challenged by some historians, who suggest that it was MacArthur who put forward the notion of disarmament as part of an initiative to remake Japan along the lines of Switzerland, as a neutral state concerned with economic prosperity rather than military strength. And before anyone starts emailing me, yes, I know Switzerland has a military, in fact, it has a conscript military, but I imagine nobody thought to point that out to Douglas MacArthur. Anyway, this theory goes that the idea was originally MacArthur's, but that Shidehara was pressured to take credit for it, chiefly by conservatives like Yoshida Shigeru, a man we've spent some time with before and will spend time with again, who saw utility in Article 9 as a way to ensure that Japan invested in its economy, not defense, but who also foresaw potential difficulties with the optics of Article 9 being imposed by foreigners rather than being something the Japanese came up with themselves. The whole thing is still open to dispute. I actually had a colleague in graduate school who was working on a completely different theory that a relatively minor liberal politician named Ashida Hitoshi was the one who actually came up with the idea. We're just not really sure. Regardless, that note about disarming Japan was definitely on the one-page handwritten note which Charles Cadiz received from Douglas MacArthur, providing him with instructions on how to approach the new constitution, a note which, by the way, for some reason, nobody thought to save and was thus thrown out. The final text in English of Article 9, which was then translated into Japanese, reads, quote, Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. In order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of the belligerency of the state will not be recognized." End quote. 
It is, in many ways, one of the most sweepingly idealistic statements of the whole Constitution, this idea that war can just be legislated away. As we'll see a few episodes down the line, that kind of idealism will not survive the harsh light of realpolitik for very long. In an attempt to end the system of state support for Shinto shrines, which was perceived by the Americans as the use of religion to brainwash people into accepting militarism, Article 20 of the new Constitution guaranteed religious freedom and barred the state from supporting any religious activities, a major blow to national Shinto organizations, which had received funding from the government during the war years. Censorship of the press was outlawed, academic freedom was guaranteed, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom of association were all granted, and in a truly spectacular guarantee for a country where people were actually still starving to death, Article 25 stated, quote, All people shall have the right to maintain the minimum standards of wholesome and cultured living. In all spheres of life, the state shall use its endeavors for the promotion and extension of social welfare and security and of public health, end quote. All three of MacArthur's initial bullet points were included, the emperor's powers were clearly circumscribed by Article 4, which stated, quote, The emperor shall perform only such acts in matters of state as are provided for in this constitution, and he shall not have powers related to government. Article 9, of course, fulfilled the second point of MacArthur's bullets, and the old peerage was dissolved by a subsection of Article 14. The government itself would be reworked, in the model of the British Parliament, with a majority party or coalition selecting a prime minister, both because of MacArthur's desire for a British-style budgeting system and because the parliamentary system was closer to the way Japanese democracy had operated in the 1920s than something like, say, the American Congress would be. So all in all, the Showa Constitution is basically the ideals of American progressivism, the New Deal, and a healthy dose of good old American optimism, given form. Colonel Cades, the head of the Constitution drafting team, was the one responsible for bringing all of this idealism into the final document. He had been a member of the Public Works Administration and the Treasury Department under Roosevelt before signing up for the Army, and was thus a committed New Dealer. Cades was also responsible for ensuring the genuine democratic accountability of the Constitution, some in the drafting convention fearing that the Japanese would be irresponsible and abandon their democracy at the first chance, argued for restrictions on the ability to amend the Constitution or even a block on all amendments before 1955. Cades shot them down. This Constitution was going to be democratic, with all the benefits and all the faults that implied. Interestingly, both the attitude of Cades and the majority of his fellow drafters was that this almost certainly would be the constitution Japan would eventually adopt. Nobody in the committee bought into the story that the Americans eventually used when this whole convention came to light, that this was just a sample constitution intended to guide Japanese leaders in writing their own copies. They knew that they were working on the real deal. However, from a scan of their papers and correspondence, it seems that Cades and the others also believed that their text was not final, and that the Japanese diet would have a chance to make some revisions of its own. 
That is, if MacArthur even signed off on this draft and let it advance, which was not guaranteed. Charles Cades was a progressive New Dealer, Douglas MacArthur was not. In fact, the draft went pretty quickly through the ratification process. In the end, Colonel Cades didn't even need eight full days. After just six, he handed a completed draft to Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur then invited Prime Minister Shidahara over for what was supposed to be a cordial luncheon, and then surprised the Prime Minister by casually dropping a completed constitution on the table. Also present at the affair was MacArthur's chief aide, General Courtney Whitney, who took the job of bad cop to MacArthur's good cop by offhandedly mentioning that he was enjoying Japan's atomic sunshine right as an American B-29 bomber flew overhead. Shidahara took the hint and arranged for the Imperial Diet to review the draft as is. In a somewhat ironic twist, the only legal way for democracy to be implemented under existing Japanese law was through very anti-democratic means. There was no popular referendum on the Showa Constitution. The existing Meiji Constitution, still technically in force, only allowed the Emperor to approve amendments to the existing Constitution, after those amendments had been endorsed by the Diet. That endorsement, with zero modifications to the text, was made on October 7, 1946. The Emperor put his new seal on the Constitution on November 3rd. This was the one and only time that the rules regarding amending the Meiji Constitution were ever used. Strictly speaking, Japan's new Constitution was and is just one gigantic amendment to the old Constitution. And if you're wondering, so far, the Showa Constitution as well has never been amended. And that was that. Japan had a new constitution which would come into full effect on May 3rd, 1947. The old ways were done, the new country had been born, and we'll have a lot more to say about that before this series is over. But before we get there, the past has yet to be fully reckoned with. For the next two weeks, the Tokyo War Crimes Trials. For now, though, that's all for this week. Special thanks this week to Elton Jung, and to listener Marcus for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Lifting the Lost, Part 4.